The following podcast contains mature language and discussions that are not suitable for younger audiences. The opinions voiced in this podcast are our own. We are not experts on the topic we present, but have conducted our own research. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Strange and Undecided podcast. I'm your host, Jarrett, joined by my co-host, Patrick. Welcome back, everyone. Hello. So we've got an interesting topic today, as always, but it's your favorite. Hmm. Is it a UFO? You are correct. Yeah. So have you heard of a place called Shag Harbor before? Shag Harbor. Is that down south? No, it's out east. Okay. All right. Are you ready? I'm always ready. Are you ready? I think so. You don't sound so sure. We'll see what happens. Strap in your safety belts, people. October 4th, 1967. The weather was clear on that fall night. The small town of Shag Harbor lay still next to the icy waters. However, residents of the town noticed strange orange lights flashing in the sky above the water. The lights descended rapidly towards the water's surface. The lights impacted the water, causing a bright flash and a loud boom, which sounded like an explosion. However, there was no sign of a crash. Instead, the lights moved across the water and then slowly dipped beneath the surface. What did the people of Shag Harbor witness? And why is this considered one of Canada's most famous UFO sightings? Shag Harbor is a small fishing town on the southern shore of Nova Scotia. The population is roughly only 400 to 450 people. The lifeline of this city centers around its lobster fishing, taking place only from November to May. This town is aptly named after the bird, the shag, which is a member of the cormorant family. This is similar to a loon. Shag Harbor was not a busy place and was left off of most maps. But soon, the town would be in the public eye and everybody would know about it. On October 4th, 1967, around 9 p.m., lights were witnessed in the sky over the Atlantic Ocean. These weren't any ordinary lights, though. Most witnesses who saw them agreed unanimously that there were four distinct orange lights that evening. Among those who saw the lights that night were townsfolk and a number of fishermen along the province's southwest coast. Other witnesses included airline pilots flying over Quebec. Air Canada Flight 305 was en route from Halifax International Airport and heading to Toronto. The plane was flying over Sherbrooke, Quebec, and St. John, Quebec, at an altitude of 3,658 meters, or roughly 12,000 feet, when First Officer Robert Ralph and Captain Pierre Charbonneau noticed something strange out the left side of the aircraft at around 7.15 p.m., almost two hours prior to the people of Shag Harbor witnessing their event. Both pilots watched as a glowing object tracked along a parallel course a few miles away from them. They described it as a brilliantly lit rectangular object with a string of smaller lights trailing behind it. At 7.19 p.m., an explosion was observed near the largest of the objects, but no sound was heard. Two minutes later, a second explosion was observed, and the light caused by the explosion changed color multiple times before fading ultimately to a blue cloud that surrounded the object. Both pilots were obviously shocked 
but chalked it up to being nothing more than a weather balloon. At first, they weren't even going to report the incident, but changed their minds later as they thought an explosion could have hurt the passengers on board and it would be negligent on their part not to report it. They were afraid that if they said anything other than a weather balloon, they would lose their positions and their credibility. They both filed their reports, however, nothing was ever followed up on. On the water, Captain Leo Howard Mersey picked up four blips on his radar that weren't moving, approximately 28 kilometers or 17 miles from his boat, he could see the four bright lights in a rectangular formation. The rest of the boat crew, which was nearly 20 fishermen, also witnessed the lights. The captain radioed the sighting to the RCC, or Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax, as well as the harbor master, asking for information on what he was seeing. He ended up filing a report with the RCMP, or Royal Canadian Mounted Police, detailing what he had seen. I actually have his report here. If you would like to see it, I'll be posting it in the show notes. Yeah, so in that report, it's interesting, gives this man some credit because the RCMP actually state that he's a reliable witness. Yeah, which you typically don't see in these kinds of cases. The second somebody says they see something strange, their first, as we'll actually see later, they're kind of their first uh, reaction is to say, oh, you're you're on drugs or you're drunk or you're crazy. Yeah, so good on the RCMP for taking this guy's case seriously, as they should with any case. Absolutely. On the ground, a group of five teenagers watched as the lights in the sky began to flash in sequence. At approximately 11 p.m., the lights suddenly dove towards the water at a 45-degree angle. At least 11 people saw the object descend rapidly, and multiple witnesses reported hearing a whistling sound and then what sounded like an explosion. The people who had witnessed the event thought that they were watching an airplane crash. Lori Wickens, who is now 67 years old, is a former fisherman who witnessed lights in the sky that fateful night. He stated, There was four lights in a row, and they were going on and off. In 1967, he was only 17 years old, and he was driving home to Shag Harbor with one of his friends and three young women. He also stated, one would come on, then two, three, and four, and they'd all be off for a second and come back on again. When the lights plummeted towards the water, he was certain he was about to witness an airplane crash. As quickly as he could, he found a phone booth and called the local RCMP detachment at Barrington Passage. Immediately, he was questioned about being drunk, and he told them he wasn't, and he's dead certain about what he saw. At that point, nobody or very few people had called in the event, but eventually several other people called the RCMP detachment that night telling the exact same story. Haha, I may be drunk, but I'm not the only one who's seen this. At around the same time, RCMP Constable Ron Pound had witnessed the strange lights in the sky as he was driving down Highway 3 on his way to Shag Harbor. Pound described seeing four distinct lights in the sky and that they all appeared to be attached to one of the craft. He also stated that the object he was seeing in the sky was approximately 60 feet in length. Constable Pound stated that as he watched the object plummet towards the water, he saw it change shape and was, quote, no known object. Other witnesses were able to corroborate Constable Pound's story in the days that followed. Lori Wickens made his way down to the waterfront and joined a dozen or so people who had gathered and were observing the shocking scene unfolding before them. 
A glowing orange sphere was bobbing on the surface of the water, only 300 meters from where he stood. Two other RCMP officers, Corporal V. Werbicki and Constable Ron O'Brien, were dispatched to the presumed impact site. When all three officers convened at the impact site, they found that the object was floating on the surface of the water, approximately a half mile from shoreline. It was radiating a pale yellow light now, and as it drifted across the surface of the water, it was leaving a trail of dense yellow foam that sparkled. Hmm, What could it be? Concerned that there may be survivors from the crash, the RCMP detachment contacted the RCC in Halifax to notify them of the crash and to inquire if any aircraft were missing. So just for context here, at this point in time, nobody had reported seeing a UFO. Everybody said this was a plane crash or something strange in the sky. Not a single person had said, there's a UFO in the sky. That's aliens. The RCMP thought that one guy was drunk. He never said UFO. Nope. They thought he was drunk anyways. Oh, you're seeing you're seeing stuff in the sky. You're a 17-year-old kid. You don't know anything. A rescue mission of sorts was formed, consisting of several fishing boats that set out within the first half hour of the crash to investigate and were later joined by a Coast Guard cutter. A cutter is just one of their boats that they use. They searched for survivors and debris. However, at 11.20 p.m., the object had sunk before they were able to reach it, and no survivors were found, nor was there any debris. Just the yellow foam on the surface of the water. The foam remained as the object sunk? Yes. What is interesting to note was that witnesses on these boats could smell sulfur coming from the yellow foam. And from one account that I read about, the crew members of a boat didn't want to actually go into the yellow foam. They thought it would damage the boat. It could be corrosive. It could hurt them in some way. But instead, the boat actually went through the yellow foam and obviously was unaffected. Yeah, I mean, at that point, they're thinking maybe jet fuel or something weird. Something like that, but they were very weirded out, and it was like sparkly too. Yeah, something they had never seen before. Exactly. So you want to avoid it. For sure. I would too. I wouldn't want to... Oh, Let's go straight into this yellow foam and yeah, see what exactly. it does. <laughs> the foam kept bubbling to the surface where the object had apparently sunk. Eventually, a 37 meter by 91 meter or 120 foot by 300 foot foamy area developed around the crash site, much like an oil slick. Efforts to search for any wreckage or signs of a crash continued until 3 a.m. When the sun finally came back up again, the search continued. At that point, people were convinced that something had definitely crashed and sunk in the water, but were still not sure what it was. Pretty close to shore. Uh, what did you say, like 300 meters or something? Yeah, half mile, 300 meters, something like that. How deep would the water have been uh, at that point? That's a good question. I'm not sure of the depth of Shag Harbor, but it would be it would definitely be deep enough that this thing could sink and not be seen anymore. And if it was 60 feet long, again, it was at nighttime, and I don't know how clear the water was in that particular area, but... Does it specify any of the equipment they were using to search, like... Uh... I don't know, some like sonar or anything that could penetrate underwater? As far as I know, they were just using radar. So that was pretty much from the water and above. There was also like fishing boats out there too and stuff, right? Yep. They would have had like, I don't know, like a fish finder or something. I wonder if they scanned over the area just to see if there's any like blobs underwater that they could see. Did they have fish finders back then in 1967? Fun fact, the fish finder was invented in 1948. Really? Well, there you go. So maybe they did have that, but I didn't hear or I didn't see any reports saying that they had used that to detect anything. Well, they should have. They should have. 
The next morning, RCC Halifax sent a preliminary report to the Canadian Forces Headquarters in Ottawa, also called the Air Desk. Their job was to handle all UFO sightings. Both the RCC and NORAD's facility at Bacaro, Nova Scotia, were not able to identify any missing aircraft. All of them were accounted for, both military and civilian. Hang on, they're responsible for all UFO sightings in 1967? Just the ones in Canada, specifically. Did people talk about UFOs back then? Not a lot. That the fact that they had a whole, uh, I don't know, committee devoted to investigating. Good, good on them. But that's, that's a good observation. I was thinking the same thing when I was going through this. It's 1967. If you see a UFO or something like that, why do they have a division responsible for that? That weirded me out as well. Was it called something different instead of UFO back then? No, it was always called Unidentified Flying Objects. It's only now that it's called UAP, which was Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon or something like that, or Unknown Aerial Phenomena. Yeah. So back then, the classification was still a UFO. I mean, in all sense of the word, that's what it was. Nobody said aliens. So for those of you who don't know, NORAD is the North American Aerospace Defense Command. That was like, uh, NORAD was invented during the Cold War, wasn't it? For like uh, defense against possible nuclear threats. Yeah, I think NORAD's like a anti-intercontinental ballistic missile defense system. Yep, that's exactly what it is. Since there were no survivors, bodies, or debris, this made the event more difficult to determine. Conventional explanations such as weather balloons, other aircraft, and flares were ruled out, and the report was thusly labeled a UFO. Hell yeah. That's a win for the UFO conspiracy people. Absolutely. The most important takeaway here is that the authorities were calling this a UFO, not the townspeople who witnessed the event. This was not revealed to the public at the time and would be kept a secret. More on that later. The head of the air desk sent a priority message to Maritime Command and asked them to conduct a underwater search for the object responsible for the event in Shag Harbor. The Navy's fleet diving unit, Atlantic, would be carrying out the search. According to official military records, seven Navy divers from the HMCS Granby were deployed and conducted a low-tech search using only handheld flashlights. And this happened for three days. Welcome to the Canadian Navy. So technologically advanced. I think we could have done a better job. Years later, in an interview with Laurie Wickens, he stated, All I know is that we saw something and something came down. He added that he believes the divers pulled something out of the water. He said, I can't prove it, but in my opinion, they found something. On October 8th, 1967, Maritime Command called off the search effort, claiming nil results. There were reports of the divers recovering an aluminum-looking object, but it turned out only to be a marker of sorts used by the military. A tin can. Pretty much. Soon after, the media attention surrounding the event faded, and interest in the event completely dwindled. It wasn't until 25 years later that a man named Chris Stiles brought to light some jaw-dropping revelations of the Shag Harbor UFO incident. Let's hear it, Stiles. What do you got? What's special about Chris Stiles is not only the fact that he is a leading investigator in the UFO world, but also he was one of the witnesses of the Shag Harbor UFO sighting. So basically the sighting instigated his interest in the UFO phenomenon? You are absolutely correct. So maybe does that add credibility 
or take away credibility to his credentials? I would say it would take away in certain circumstances. If this was something that he viewed by himself and nobody else saw it, then that would probably take away. But the fact that so many people saw this event and he was one of them and that led him to try and find the truth, which is basically what he says he wants to do. I feel like that's very credible. Okay. In that sense, if he's dedicated to the truth, that makes him credible. But if he's just trying to verify a crazy story, that would make him incredible. So let's see what type of information he comes up with here. At the time of the Shag Harbor incident, he was only 12 years old and getting ready for bed. He happened to look out of his window in his room and noticed a strange orange light moving along the shoreline. He grabbed his jacket and ran outside and down to the waterfront to get a better look. What he saw was a glowing sphere-like object hovering over the water and moving. He got scared and ran back to the safety of his house. Years later, he launched his own investigation into the Shag Harbor incident. He was able to obtain documents from the Canadian National Archives, as well as the Department of National Defense. Stiles said, I interviewed anybody who was still alive. I tracked them down. I was a bulldog with it back then. Assisted by MUFON investigator Doug Ledger, and for those of you who don't know, MUFON stands for Mutual UFO Network. And this is a U.S.-based nonprofit organization composed of civilian volunteers who study reported UFO sightings. The two of them uncovered through reports and interviews that on October 8, 1967, when the search effort was supposedly called off, it actually wasn't. They also found documents that had the letters UFO written and underlined at the top. Proof that the authorities knew this was not a plane and that it was officially labeled a UFO. The fact that the Shag Harbor incident was classified by authorities as a UFO sighting and nothing ever came of the situation really troubled Chris Stiles. He was able to track down a man named Ralph Lowinger and interviewed him. He was one of the pilots aboard a different flight the night of October 4, 1967. Pan Am Flight 160 was a Boeing 707 cargo plane at an altitude of 33,000 feet. Lowinger told Stiles that he saw a row of flashing lights while he was flying over the Gulf of Maine, heading towards the coast of Nova Scotia, the same lights everyone else had seen. Lowinger and the other crew members aboard the plane never reported the sighting until now. What makes this story important is that it adds to the credibility of the sighting. So many witnesses saw the same thing, and of the reports that were actually made, they all reported a plane crash, not a UFO sighting. Do you take a report from 25 years after the incident as credible? I'm going to say no, because you've been exposed to all of the media circus, I guess you would call it. You've been exposed to all this information. You become less credible if you say, oh, yeah, I saw that. And it's however many years afterwards, even days afterwards, and you kind of lose credibility. You have to like report it then and there at the time that it's actually happening but 25 years later it's kind of hard to believe like sure you also can't disprove it but so not hold up in court no official records had never given any concrete answers as to what happened in shag harbor however evidence of another incident occurring just 50 kilometers north off the coast of shelburne was uncovered chris styles wrote a book published in 2001 called dark object in his book, Stiles mentions that he was able to track down and interview former military personnel and even some members of the Navy's fleet diving unit who conducted the underwater search in the days following the crash. What happened next was astonishing. 
These interviewees stated that the glowing orange orb that was seen floating and then sinking in Shag Harbor had actually submerged purposely and had traveled underwater out of the harbor and 50 kilometers north to the seabed in Shelburne. To give you an idea of that time period, the Cold War was on and so was the space race. Russian submarines were known to show up along the East Coast in attempts to spy on North American activities. To defend themselves, the American military would experiment and test various devices and equipment to spy on the communists. This could be in the form of satellites that would take pictures and eject film canisters from very high altitudes so they could be retrieved and viewed. The area the object had traveled to from Shag Harbor was close to the location of a top-secret U.S. military base. The base was cleverly disguised as an oceanographic institute. The facility would use underwater microphones and magnetic detection devices to track enemy submarines. This information was not revealed until the 1980s. The military base picked up the object on their radar and tracked it as it made its way toward Shelburne and eventually resting on the seabed. In Chris Stiles' book, the people he interviewed told him about a top-secret fleet composed of American and Canadian ships that were dispatched to the area after the object settled on the seabed. Did it say how long it took for the object to travel from the time of sinking to where it settled? It didn't give an exact timeline, but it wasn't... It didn't take days. It was pretty, I'd say, fairly quick from what I've seen and from what I've read, but it didn't give an exact timeline saying it took exactly 14 hours for it to travel or anything like that. I couldn't find any information on that. So meanwhile, these people are looking at this foam and this thing has already been long gone. Yeah, exactly. They're thinking it's still right below them, that it sunk from the explosion and the crash, but really it went underwater and traveled. That adds a layer to this story for sure. There were also documents that he found stating that an underwater search was conducted off the coast of Shelburne, but there's no reasoning as to why. Could this have been to search for the UFO? According to a former Navy diver, the fleet was able to find the object, and they decided to patiently wait and observe it. What was more shocking was that when the divers conducted their search, they found a second object that, according to the diver, was lending assistance to the first object. Both objects were observed for about a week before the fleet was interrupted by reports of a Russian submarine detected in the area. They just watched this thing for a whole week yep. without interfering. Clearly, they were scared of going near this thing. You don't send a armada of boats out for something that you don't think is interesting. Interesting or threat or something unknown. Absolutely. All of the above, maybe. The fleet was subsequently distracted by the Russian submarine, and the two objects broke away from the fleet and headed in the direction of the Gulf of Maine. Wait, so is this Russian submarine just like trotting along, just doing its own spying, and it doesn't know it's being observed? Yeah, the sub... I'm and and the, the, uh, our Navy's just like, oh, these guys are going straight for this thing. Let's see how this plays out. No, it, it's uh, it, it, the Russian sub wasn't going for the objects. It was entering Canadian waters kind of close to their location, but it was trying to spy on North America. It wasn't aware of the fact that the UFO was there, as far as I know. That's funny. Our Navy's like, get the fuck out of here, Russia. Yeah, so they were distracted by it, and then... We got, we got bigger fish to fry. This escape attempt put distance between the objects and the pursuing Navy boats. The objects eventually resurfaced and took off into the skies. It gets even better. 
This was observed by witnesses and was seen over Lower Woods Harbor, which is only a five-minute drive northwest of Shag Harbor. A description of two glowing objects flying through the sky was reported. This matches the diver's story perfectly, and the time frame of it was an exact match. Tracking back to the events off of Shelburne, the story was corroborated by various witnesses, consisting of both civilian and military. Unfortunately, these reports were never made official and were given off-record. The former military personnel feared repercussions for revealing the information officially. Those repercussions could be the loss of their pensions. As for the civilian witnesses, they feared being labeled crazy or strange, as well as having their privacy invaded. To them, it wasn't worth it. I'd be all over it. Call me crazy, put me on a camera. I'll be that kooky guy. <laughs> There's no doubt that something happened in Shag Harbor. There are too many witnesses to deny that something strange happened that night. Chris Stiles made his career searching for answers to the unknown, stemming from what he saw as a young boy. Was it a UFO from outer space? an experimental military aircraft, or an elaborate hoax. I will let you decide what you believe. Moral of the story, don't go down to Shag Harbor or Shelburne. All right, and that is the story of the Shag Harbor incident. Do you believe that something happened, like extraterrestrial or a UFO? Or do you think this was just some anomaly? The longer I think about the phenomena, the less I think that it could be extraterrestrial. Like you think it's going to be something that's more man-made versus from outer space? I'm thinking we're thinking too small of a picture. As in, most people tend to think of extraterrestrials with the UFO phenomena, but I'm thinking maybe we're thinking too inside the box. As if that's like a crazy enough phenomenon in its own, but what if it's like extra-dimensional or extra-temporal? Like it comes from a different place and a different time? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, clearly whatever this thing is has some crazy capabilities that we don't have. Like maybe it's technology that we invented in the future and we're coming back to do something with our past selves. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. The universe is so big that the odds of something wanting to come to our planet seems low. What would they want to do with us here? It seems more likely, if possible, that it's us in some other dimension, some other time, some other place. But it's like us coming into this current time with our future technologies. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the thing that weirds me out the most about this is that yellow foam on the water. Because by descriptions, it was like four inches thick and it was this sparkly yellow foam, but nobody took a sample. And that just weirds me out. The fact that there's like physical evidence like that and multiple people made this observation, like every report that I looked at said something about the yellow foam, mm -hmm. but there was no chemical analysis performed, no investigation as to the yellow foam. It was just kind of something that was there and eventually it just went away. Yeah, that is an interesting point. I guess I could take the side of like a experimental craft. Is it some experimental fuel? It had a sulfur smell. So that's something of this world. At this point, though, they're still thinking it's like a crashed airplane or something. So them trying to take samples wasn't in their best interest at the time. They were yeah. just trying to uh, save any survivors. Yeah, absolutely. No, I get that. I understand. It would just would have been nice if uh, somebody had the forethought to be like, oh, this stuff seems kind of weird and then scooped up some and I don't even know how they would keep it properly, but... It would have been nice. You think the sulfur smell is coming from the foam? Oh, for sure. That's not the first time we've heard of a sulfur smell coming from these unidentified phenomena. 
What else does it come from? Demons. Do you think there's some kind of overlay between that kind of paranormal event and an event like this? Anything paranormal is just like something we can't explain. Whatever it is, ghosts, UFOs, demons, ghouls, aliens, they're all kind of from the same realm. So I feel like there's some sort of connection in there that we don't know yet. I don't know, even just to me, like connecting like a ghost or like a demon to like aliens is like, I don't see the connection, but it is an interesting because it's all classified as this is all the unknown. We don't know anything about it. We don't know how everything's connected. So it could literally be anything at this point. So let's yeah. not shut off any options. I still think it's absolutely crazy that this sphere dunked underwater and shot off. It literally dunked on the town of Shag Harbor. Yeah, the fact that it went underwater and escaped that area, maybe it knew it was going to get too much attention and just decided to get out of there. I don't know. That's interesting. And the fact that it was observed for so long, according to those eyewitness statements. Whatever it was, it wasn't scared at the same time because it was observed for five days after that. Yeah. But yeah, I think uh, what was really cool too was the fact that a second object came down, went into the water and went to, according to the diver, lend assistance. So my thoughts, at least the way that the story that I read is framed, was that this object was having some malfunction of some sort due to the explosions that everyone claimed to have seen and it eventually plummeting to the earth. So I think something happened and something broke down and it couldn't take off again. So it went somewhere that was more private, waited for assistance. They got everything fixed in those seven days and then they took off afterwards. Let's say this thing did come from another planet or something like that. Clearly, it's very sophisticated, way beyond what we ever know. The fact that it broke down randomly seems like a small chance to me. Maybe it wanted to be seen for some reason. Yeah, maybe. The other thing I was thinking, too, is this could also be some form of experimental military craft. Maybe it was Russia all along. Yeah, their submarine was sent out to come check up on it. Be like, hey, we haven't heard back from you guys in a few days. <laughs> Where'd you go? Oh, you're on the seabed? Oh my God, there's 50 boats around me? I got to get out of here. Fuck this shit, I'm out. Yeah, so it's been 57 years. The fact that it's been 57 years and we're still talking about it must give us some credibility. I would think so. I think just the sheer number of witnesses in this case. You can't tell everyone, no, you didn't see this because that's just being in denial. Also, in typical Canadian fashion... Years later, guess what was made? It, we got a coin? Yes, we got another coin. The Royal Canadian Mint issued another coin. So for each of the episodes we've done, there's been a coin. Do I get to see? Whoa, that's not what I expected. It's another rectangular coin. Hmm. Yeah, the, the lights on this coin, the way they make it look is like part of a giant saucer looking craft. In my head, I was just thinking like lights on their own, but they definitely made it depicted like it was part of a giant object sinking into the water. That's cool. Yeah, so this coin actually, in normal light, it'll show just the four independent lights uh, that were seen in the sky, and then it glows in the dark, and when it does, that kind of blue disc forms in the background. I'm not really sure what it was or what it is, but... Holographic UFO coin. There you go. Part of the collection. Add to the collection. All right, that's all we have for you tonight. Also, don't forget to email us at strangeandundecided at gmail.com if you have any ideas for the show or want your story featured. New episodes of the show will be posted each Sunday, so make sure you follow on your favorite podcasting app to stay up to date. Thank you for listening, and good night. <laughs>